Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. James Lemercier, the founder of the White Helmets, was recently found dead in Turkey. Police say he fell off of a balcony, that there are no signs of foul play, and that they suspect a suicide. The White Helmets are known around the world for rescuing civilians in militant-held areas of Syria. But my colleague Max Blumenthal at the Gray Zone has exposed another side of the White Helmets. Max Blumenthal is editor of the Gray Zone and author of several books, including The Management of Savagery. He joins me now. Welcome, Max. Your response to James Lemercier's death, and can you tell us a bit about who he was and the side of him that has not gotten very much attention? Well, James Lemercier's uh, death and the circumstances surrounding it remain unclear, but what we've seen is someone die in Turkey, in Istanbul, in a very uh, media-controlled environment who has been surrounded by narrative managers ever since he emerged as a public figure with the founding of the White Helmets in Turkey as part of the proxy war against Syria. And so James Lemercier has spent his career, much of it since 2002, as a former British army captain and also, according to The Guardian, a former intelligence officer in Bosnia uh, since 2002 as a mercenary working in what's known in um, you know, development fields, basically in imperial speak, in stabilization. What is stabilization? Uh, Martin Chulov, who is a huge propagandist for, the, for regime change, in Syria at The Guardian, wrote in his obituary of Le Mercurier, stabilization and what the term really meant became central to Le Mercurier's work as he crossed a broken region. Hmm, a broken region, I wonder who broke it, taking an ever-deepening personal stake in the events that were shaping it. Le Mercurier was actually involved in breaking the regions that he was in, and when you break them, that's called transition in imperialist speak in Washington speak. Transition is code for regime change. Um, and when you kind of start to destabilize countries, areas become ungovernable and they become governed by the proxies of the US uh, or whoever is behind the regime change operation. In Syria, it was the US and its Gulf allies in Turkey. And then you move your forces in in order to establish a parallel government on the way towards full regime change. And that's what's known as stabilization. In reality, it's occupation. And so large areas of Syria were occupied by the so-called moderate rebels who were being armed through Operation Timber Sycamore, a multi-billion dollar CIA and Pentagon run, oper well, CIA run operation primarily, that brought money from the Gulf states, particularly Qatar, um, logistics through Turkey, where Le Mercurier was based, and uh, weapons from the U.S. into the and training into the hands of basically Sunni Salafi extremist groups who wanted to overthrow the government in Damascus. And these groups were extremely unsavory. There were, it was difficult increasingly for reporters to be around them without losing their heads, literally. Uh, James Foley was one particularly tragic example. Uh, Alan Henning, there are many others. And so the white helmets were established to become the focus of the Syrian proxy war. And these would be the kind of brave rescuers. Um, they claim that they rescued anywhere between 25,000 and a hundred thousand people, but there's no 
uh, evidence to back that up. However, as everyone watching this knows, they were honored and basically showered with praise by all of the elites from London to New York. And that was part of a vast propaganda operation in which the White Helmets would not only become kind of a source for all of these journalists operating on the outside who would feed off of the video that they gathered in areas controlled by these extremist militias, but that the uh, reporters and celebrities would be involved in a vast propaganda operation to support uh, humanitarian intervention in Syria. And that led to the White Helmets being granted um, you know, a, a, a nominated twice for the Nobel Prize. Um, they had uh, a documentary made about them on Netflix, which, you know, I found to be mediocre as far as documentaries go, but it won an Oscar. And meanwhile, this organization was working hand in glove, not only with Al Qaeda, but also, also with ISIS, which I'll, I'll discuss in a minute. But let's just quickly go through James Lemercier's career because there were some new details that I didn't even know. Um, according to Chulov's biography at The Guardian, um, which just was one of the key uh, hubs of White Helmet's propaganda throughout the Syrian proxy war, I didn't know that in 2002, Lemur Surrier was actually running a prison in occupied Palestine, in the occupied West Bank, uh, where Ahmad Sadat and other Palestinian political prisoners were being held. Um, Sadat was the leader of the PFLP, and this was during the Second Intifada, and he was jailed uh, by Israel. And so Limer Surya was basically involved not just in the Syrian proxy war and stabilization, but in the Israeli occupation. This is a really shocking detail that, of course, goes unmentioned or unscrutinized. And then he goes on to work for Richard Clark at the Harbor Group, um, as, again, a mercenary, uh, they were protecting the oil fields of the UAE. And Richard Clark, who was the former, um, you know, he was a former State Department advisor on, on counterterror during the Clinton administration, and he was famously ejected from the second Bush administration. Clark had a longstanding relationship with the Emiratis. And so Le Mercurier was involved with the United Arab Emirates, uh, one of the groups that's been you know, they have a bloodstained record throughout the Middle East, particularly in Yemen. And then Lemur Surya moves into Turkey um, and starts this rescue group with a firm, a Turkish firm called ARK, uh, which later turns into the White Helmets. But I think the most interesting component of this, which I wrote about, is that the White Helmets were um, created as a propaganda construct and an influence operation with over $60 million dollars from the British Foreign Office and tens of millions of dollars. Um, it, it, it's unknown how much the US gave through USAID and an untold sum of money from Qatar. They were trained in Turkey and then a PR firm was hired, which was based out of Avaz, the kind of clicktivist site that promoted the proxy, the, um, the you know, regime change operation in Libya and then was pushing a no-fly zone in Syria. And this was called the Syria Campaign. And it was run out of a group spun out of Avaz called Purpose. Um, and Purpose became sort of the base of the propaganda operation around Syria, which was also kind of a slush fund for attacks on journalists who dared to criticize 
Lemur Surrier and the operation he was running. And so it basically turned, transformed the White Helmets into this kind of international propaganda operation that was also about um, narrative management, controlling the narrative, and that meant destroying the careers and the reputations of journalists, including myself, who had reported critically on Le Mercurier. And so I don't know what this, what caused Le Mercurier's death. It said that he fell off a balcony, which is always unusual, especially in a place like Turkey. Um, the Turkish media has, was able to successfully manage the circumstances around Jamal Khashoggi's death to the satisfaction of Erdogan and his government. Um, and so we've seen very little critical reporting. I've seen some pictures of his body. Um, it was said that his wife had gone to sleep with him. They had um, kind of a keyless entry system. Their home was apparently very securitized. And she was awoken by the police uh, telling her that he was dead, so no one had entered the home. That's the story. But I think there needs to be questions about someone who lived a life like him, who was involved in such a dirty war on Syria. And the real cover-up is not just about his death. We don't know if there's a cover-up around his death. I can't go that far. The real cover-up is around his life, as he's being celebrated everywhere from The Guardian to The New York Times as this, you know, this, this heroic figure, this kind of you know, Gandhi of conflict stabilization when his legacy is actually very dark and stained with blood. And when you say that the White Helmets work with Al-Qaeda, for people who might hear that and think, whoa, that's crazy, that goes against everything that I've heard, what to you is the uh, most uh, uh, convincing uh, and concrete evidence of the White Helmets' ties to Al-Qaeda? Well, it's so well documented that uh, I think very few viewers will deny it. It's just... You know, and it's interesting when you bring it up or you see it discussed in mainstream accounts, if it ever is, they'll simply say uh, Russian, the Russian government alleges that it is a front for Al Qaeda um, and they'll never actually address it. But I mean, when we're talking about footage, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of photographs. We're talking about documented video that we've reported on, Ben Norton and I at the Gray Zone of White Helmets uniformed members participating in executions of people who are convicted of violating the brutal Wahhabi theocratic law imposed on civilians in areas that the Western and Gulf-backed extremist rebels had taken over. Um, there were at least, I think, at least two videos of extremely gruesome executions where the White Helmets were basically the MASH unit that rolled in after some poor guy had his head blown off for violating theocratic law. Um, and we, let's, let's, let's show some video right now of, of White Helmets celebrating after the city of Idlib was taken over by um, Jabhat Fatal Sham, which was a coalition led by Jabhat al-Nusra, the Syrian affiliate of the organization responsible for the killing of over 3,000 Americans on 9-11, referring to Al-Qaeda. Okay, so now that we've seen that video, um, let's actually look at an even more sh shocking video. 
uh, which very few people who are even familiar with the White Helmets might know about. And this shows John Cantley, who is a British photojournalist who was captured by ISIS, um, probably sold to ISIS through the same kidnapping ring that um, was responsible for um, capturing James Foley. And Cantley has, since his kidnapping, become a kind of a hostage of the Islamic State. And he was forced to deliver propaganda videos uh, in support of the Islamic State, and you know, which were aired on their channels when the Islamic State was at its height. This was filmed, I think, in northern or western Aleppo. And Cantley can actually be heard referring to the Islamic State's fire brigade. And if you look behind him over his shoulder, you'll see members of the White Helmets racing around, operating alongside the Islamic State, operating with ISIS. So this is not a conspiracy theory. Let's just look at this video. And there's just been a large bomb strike on that building behind me. We heard the explosion. We were just about five minutes over that way. The fire brigade, the Islamic State fire brigade are here trying to clear up the mess. But it's absolute pandemonium. And all this follows a drone which we saw five minutes ago and then Assad's Air Force comes in and drops bombs on the market. Now, as far as I know, the Syrian Air Force does not have drones. That must have been an American drone, but that was definitely Assad's bomb dropping here on the market. So, I mean, when you, when you look at those videos and consider the fact that at the Oscars in, I think it was 2017, the entire audience of, you know, Hollywood celebrities and all of these elite liberals were asked to stand on their feet and cheer for the White Helmets. Uh, you can understand that this has been, you know, one of the most successful propaganda operations in recent history. A group that was created and funded by the U.S. and worked hand in glove with literal jihadist groups was celebrated in Hollywood, was celebrated in the halls of power here in D.C. And the figure who is responsible for it is now being cheered on as a hero, but this group was part and parcel of an operation aimed at destabilizing Syria that led to the worst refugee crisis since World War II and nearly destroyed a previously stable and secular country. You know, Max, just to uh, underscore the extent to which the White Helmets narrative uh, permeated uh, around uh, Western media and for Western audiences, I want to go to a clip. They were uh, the film you mentioned, the White Helmets, the Oscar-winning film, was featured uh, in a very laudable uh, segment on Democracy Now, a very uh, tr traditionally leftist, skeptical, uh, adversarial show, uh, and they gave it a very warm reception. We turn now to look at a group in Syria known as the Syrian Civil Defense, or the White Helmets. The group of some 3,000 volunteers has been credited with saving over 60,000 people from the rubble of buildings in war-torn Syria. Last month, the group won a Right Livelihood Award, known as the Alternative Nobel Prize. The group is also the focus of a new documentary titled The White Helmets. <laughs> In the White Helmets, we have a motto. To save a life is to save all of humanity. The trailer for the new Netflix documentary, The White Helmets. We go now to London, where we're joined by Orlando van Einsendel, the director of The White Helmets. 
So that's a clip from a Democracy Now! segment uh, featuring the uh, film The White Helmets. Max, you know, The White Helmets also won a Right Livelihood Award, which is an award that traditionally goes to, uh, you know, f uh, people who champion social justice and who fight for the environment. So obviously here, we're not just talking about, you know, corporate media parroting a certain line. We're talking about something that was incredibly wide, widespread uh, into even progressive circles. Yeah, it shows you how a bunch of spooks turned uh, the progressive left in much of the progressive left in the West into their marks and dupes. And that obviously included Democracy Now!, The Intercept, also featured a basically a press release for the White Helmets written by Murtaza Hussein. And uh, so much media was just filled with celebration of these characters. I um, remember when I was reporting on them, I called up the Syria campaign, which I mentioned before, was the public relations operation set up to generate all of this positive fluff PR for the White Helmets and turn them basically into kind of the new civil rights movement while they were working hand in glove with the worst, most bloodstained theocratic extremists on the entire planet. And I spoke to the director of the Syria campaign, whose name slips my mind right now. And he had thought that I was going to be, you know, another sympathetic journalist. And he knew about my work on Palestine and he said, you know, he praised it. Um, and he was kind of trying to, to work me. And he said, you know, you should come to Southern Turkey and visit them. Um, and they're basically offering me a trip. And, you know, it became clear to him after talking that I was asking some critical questions. And then he sort of rescinded his offer. But one reporter who did take that trip um, has written the most propagandistic eulogy for James Lemercerier, and it's Janine DiGiovanni, um, who's constantly attacking me. And there's a real discrepancy between her writing on Twitter, where she doesn't have a team of editors and she can barely, uh, she writes like at a third grade level, and her writing in places like Newsweek, where she wrote this puff piece in 2016 on the white helmets that was obviously set up for her by the Syria campaign. So here you have some award-winning journalist who lives in three places around the world and I think teaches at Yale or somewhere. Um, basically, having her journalism generated by a public relations firm. Uh, the same thing I assume happened with Murtaza Hussein, but the Syria campaign just forked over a story for him and got him some source in the White Helmets. And this is how the, all the reporting on the White Helmets took place, was a uh, PR firm was just feeding stories to reporters and they would write these press releases and it really shows what journalism is in this age for so many of the blue check marks who are constantly attacking me. Uh, Janine DiGiovanni proceeded to write a piece in the New York Review of Books um, on those who criticized the White Helmets. And it was another piece that read as if it was generated by the Syria campaign and a coalition of the kind of Syria regime change trolls who are always attacking me and trying to discredit and defame me. Um, and she painted me as a Russian asset. And she claimed falsely that, you know, uh, the gray zone was a, basically a um, Russian propaganda site. Um, she insinuated it almost directly, but then she, I think her editors, and I think her editor was Matt Seaton, who is a liberal interventionist from previously from the Guardian, 
uh, inserted, you know, we don't know what, what it really is, but we suspect it. And she tried to make all, every Russian connection she could. Um, so, you know, the Syria campaign, it wasn't just hyping up the white helmets and puffing them. As I said before, it was actively, it was functioning as a slush fund for attacks on any journalist who dared to complicate or undercut their fraudulent narrative. Uh, James the Mercurier was at the center of these attacks, I've learned. And actually, there is a group of academics in the UK who've been punching holes in the narrative of the Syrian proxy war around, the, it's, around a group called the Propaganda Study Working Group, the Propaganda Study Group. Uh, Pierce Robinson and David Miller are two figures who've helped organize this group. And they actually were um, played a pivotal role in securing the testimony of the OPCW whistleblower who called out the sham of the Duma chemical attack. And so the Syria campaign and the creators of the White Helmets and this kind of echo chamber they've created have been gunning for them for years. And upon James Lomar Surya's death, Oliver Kahn, the British neoconservative, revealed uh, kind of in passing that James Lomar Surya was, was pushing for the Times of London to write this smear piece that they eventually did on these academics. Um, I also learned that when I was on my book tour for the management of savagery and the Syria regime change echo chamber was pressuring a bookstore in Washington, politics and prose, to cancel my book launch, James Lemar Surya participated in that campaign. He tweeted it at them, not host me. And I found his deleted tweet. I mean, he later deleted it, but I found an archived version of it. And why would he do that? Well, for the same reason that a tobacco lobbyist would want to suppress a book written by someone who was investigating the role of you know, Philip Morris or Altria in uh, enhancing cigarettes with nicotine you know, to get smokers more addicted. Basically, Le Mercuria was trying to stop a book, The Management of Savagery, from exposing him and his true legacy in Syria. And he, you know, he failed there, but we can still see the narrative control managers uh, in complete hyperdrive in his death, trying to cover this whole, this whole operation that they participated in to cover it up. Janine Diagiovanni participated in a regime change propaganda operation run by a public relations firm on behalf of a group funded by the U.S. and U.K. government that was created by a former intelligence agent. How can you call yourself a journalist when you're doing that? You mentioned Duma, Max. So let me explain for people who might not be familiar with it, because there actually is a very interesting White Helmets connection here. So in Duma, the Syrian government accused in April 2018 of carrying out a chemical weapons attack. Since then, we've had not one, but two whistleblowers from the OPCW, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, coming forward with, ev with, with claims that their findings, their research, including on the ground, were suppressed by the OPCW in order to form a conclusion that uh, pinned the blame on the Syrian government. When in reality, uh, the evidence that they say was suppressed actually pointed to the attack being staged on the ground in an apparent bid to generate uh, U.S. Uh, and its allies military airstrikes on Syria, which is exactly what happened. Yeah, and there's a second whistleblower. Am I exactly. So there's two. The first one was uh, someone who wrote an engineering assessment 
based on all the evidence that was collected at the scene, uh, who also worked in Syria. The second whistleblower, the most recent one, was actually on the ground collecting uh, chemical samples and uh, among many things found that there was no difference in the chemicals taken from the outside and taken on the inside and that basically the chemical samples pointed to everyday chemicals being at the scene. Right. And it appears that some of the first images that came out of Duma were filmed by the White Helmets, who had benefited from uh, tens of millions of dollars in communications gear from the State Department. Um, there's indications from the whistleblower that there may have been um, killings that took place of the alleged victims by Jaysh al-Islam and these extremist militias which controlled who the were town. known. Right, which controlled the town of Duma. Which yeah. controlled Duma and the, in Ghouta and the areas to the east of Damascus. And that's something that fits right within the MO of these groups. And, you know, as, as I've mentioned in a previous interview we did, I interviewed people who lived under their rule who told me that they would carry out executions regularly of people for violating theocratic law. They imposed. So it's not shocking. Um, David Miller and Pierce Robinson, these academics I mentioned who have uh, helped kind of um, provide the, the OPCW whistleblower's testimony to journalists um, like Jonathan Steele and Peter Hitchens, um, they've been raising the question of whether the White Helmets were involved in arranging the bodies of the victims. Um, and that, again, would be well within the MO of the White Helmets, who are simply uh, what we think of as kind of activists. Many of them were actually doubling as fighters. All you have to do is put on a white helmet. And, you know, as we've seen before, they participated in field executions. So it wouldn't be shocking. This was the last hope for the Syria regime change operation and the Syrian insurgency. And it was to trigger U.S. military intervention to use the power of the U.S. Air Force to destroy the Syrian government in Damascus and apparently to uh, take on the Russian military in Syria as well. And so as a former Obama advisor said in Harper's to Stephen Glass, a red Charles line. Glass. Charles Glass. Charles Glass. Uh, Stephen Glass was the plagiarist from um, the Washington very Post, different than the, Charles New, Glass. the Republic in the 90s. But Charles Glass is a very good reporter who's actually reported from inside Syria, unlike a lot of other reporters. A former Obama advisor said the red line, which is, you know, the red line for a chemical weapons attack necessitating a U.S. military intervention. The red line is a recipe for a false flag. And that is what we saw. I'm very careful about saying this was a false flag. That is what we saw in Duma. It was absolutely false flag. Do I know that people were killed and then set up to, or they, or perhaps they were killed by a conventional weapons bombing by the Syrian air force? I don't know, but I do know because it's just implausible and there's been no evidence put forward, even in the official OPCW report that's convincing that there was a chemical weapons attack either by sarin or chlorine gas. And in fact, the OPCW official report was larded with outside information supplied by groups funded by the US government like and the UK foreign office apparently, like Bellingcat, uh, which was part and parcel, continues to be part and parcel of the Syrian regime change echo chamber 
in which James Lerner Surrier was at the center. So the white helmets appear to have been involved in unknown ways, I mean, unconfirmed ways, but clearly involved in operations on the ground aimed at triggering Western military intervention, basically lying to the, lying the Western public into war as we were lied to war in Iraq. But we also know that the White Helmets put out petitions on their own website calling for a no-fly zone, which is code for Western military intervention. We also know that Riyad al-Salah, the spokesman of the White Helmets, the Syrian spokesman, repeatedly visited Washington to lobby uh, great humanitarians like Elliot Engel, who is like the finger puppet of AIPAC, for the so-called Caesar sanctions bills on Syria, which have generated some of the most crushing sanctions on a civilian population we've ever seen, and which left many Syrians in the dark and in the cold last winter because they couldn't get heating oil. So what kind of humanitarian operation lobbies for sanctions on civilian population? This wasn't a humanitarian group, and James LaMercerier never intended for it to be one. Um, he was involved in a very dirty operation, and that raises some serious questions about his death. All right, I'm going to put you two things as we wrap. You mentioned APAX. Let me ask you about the Israel tie here. Uh, you have discussed before uh, the fact that when the White Helmets recently evacuated Syria, they evacuated through Israel. Uh, and the other thing I want to ask you about is, you know, you've also been reporting on recently the mask lifting moment of late when the, uh, as you reported at the Gray Zone, we've talked about on pushback, many of the same militias that Turkey has used to commit atrocities against Kurds in northern Syria were the same militias uh, that the U.S. armed and trained and supported throughout the proxy war. And in both the recent Turkish attacks on, on Kurds and also in the Turkish attacks on Kurds in Afrin, uh, there have been allegations that the White Helmets have been involved there. So I wonder if you could address both of those as we wrap. Uh, the Israel tie-in here, the evacuation through Israel, and also uh, the role, the possible role of the White Helmets in, uh, in taking part in Turkish atrocities uh, in northern Syria. Yeah, the Israel role is especially ironic for me because when I published this two-part White Helmets investigation, which... No one has disputed, none of the facts that I reported are disputed, but which led to this kind of relentless series of attacks on me that have lasted till today. Um, there was a petition by some um, students and former students around Students for Justice in Palestine to declare that I and pretty much anyone else who didn't go along with the Syrian proxy war in support of the armed opposition uh, were to be blacklisted and boycotted. Uh, I wasn't named, but it was obviously referring to me, and it was a result of the White Helmets um, reporting. Because I'd been doing a lot of talks on campus uh, hosted by SJP. So they, they kind of fell, you know, even Students for Justice in Palestine and many people on the left who had been supportive of Palestine solidarity had fallen for this false narrative about the White Helmets in specific and Syria in general. Uh, just over two years later, around two years later, the 800 so-called White Helmets families, whatever that means, I guess families of people who are identified as members of the White Helmets, who had been active in the proxy war in southern Syria, southwestern Syria, 
were evacuated through the Israeli-occupied Syrian Golan Heights with the assistance of the Israeli Shin Bet and the Israeli military to Jordan. Uh, and then they were sent to Europe, Canada, and maybe some made it to the U.S. Um, and that, what, 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 what else do you want to say about what the White Helmets represented to average Syrians when they flee into the arms of Israel and rely on one, the country that has historically attacked Syria literally thousands of times? I mean, it just says that they were part of an operation that was actually hostile to the existence of the Syrian state. And we know that Israel wasn't just coordinating um, the retreat of you know, white helmets, this, this kind of supposed civil society group. They were also arming some of the insurgents around the Golan, in the Syrian Golan. Um, and we even reported on that at the Gray Zone. Rani Akhalaf did a great on-the-ground report for us interviewing the former commander of a Free Syrian Army Battalion who was taken into the Israeli-occupied Golan one night and along with his men, given arms and supplies, and he realized that he was working, had been working for Israel all along. So he quit and turned to the other side and wound up, wound up fighting for a pro-government militia. Um, this is just confirmed fact, and you know everyone just wants to sweep this one under the rug. But even arguably more disturbing was the role of the White Helmets in Turkey's invasion of northern Syria, where Turkey is aimed to create this so-called buffer zone against the Kurdish PKK, which comes in the form of the Syrian Democratic Forces and YPG. And in 2018, um, through what they call Operation Olive Branch, another ironically named operation, uh, the town of this city of Afrin in northern Syria was ransacked. Uh, many Kurds were slaughtered. Uh, we saw a female Kurdish fighter uh, have her clothes stripped off and her body vandalized after she was killed by repurposed Free Syrian Army fighters who turned out to be some of the worst fanatics on earth. Um, and as soon as they start killing U.S. proxies among the Kurds, then the U.S. media starts to speak up and figures like Samantha Power, who had previously supported them, start to uh, you know, evince their disgust. But in came the White Helmets, and this was almost completely ignored, except on the White Helmets' own Twitter account, where they confirmed their participation in this operation. And after downtown Afrin was looted by the former moderate rebels repurposed by Turkey, the White Helmets came in with their bulldozers and kind of cleaned up, and they promoted themselves cleaning up downtown Afrin. Um, so they actually participated, they continue to participate in the Turkish invasion of northern Syria as Turkish mercenaries. And of course, James Lemur Surier was there in Istanbul. Uh, we're not sure what his role was, but he remained in Turkey as well. So, you know, it, it looks like he was working pretty closely with the Turkish government as well as with the UK and US governments to once again destabilize a country under the guise of stabilization. Max Blumenthal, editor of The Gray Zone, author of several books, including The Management of Savagery. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Aaron.